God, thank you so, so much that we get to do this. Uh, It just never ceases to amaze me that you are the God who spoke creation into existence, Genesis 1 tells us. And that that when you speak, powerful, life-changing, world-changing things happen, and yet the same God, you God, who spoke the world into existence have spoken your word, the scriptures, into existence through people. And that same word that spoke the universe into existence can speak new things, can speak life, can speak life-changing truths into us. And I pray that would happen right now. I pray that we would see our time together, how it talks about in the book of Hebrews, that the word of God is living and active, that we're not studying a dead, boring book. But right now, as we read scripture together and as we talk about it together, we're hearing from you. And I'm praying that that words, that that word, that those words that we hear from you would change us. I pray right now that the gospel would be clear, but also that gospel would be inspiring to us to go out and share it and be on mission with others. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this past late spring, early summer, I found myself over a couple of days obsessively looking at my phone and the calculator on my phone. And the reason why is that because in, back in December, I had received a, a tip from a friend who had invested in this cryptocurrency and, and really thought that I should. They thought that it was going to explode pretty soon and go up and that this was the time to invest. Back in December, I found myself with an extra about three, 400 bucks on my hands and thought, okay, maybe, maybe I should do this. But I passed and I didn't. That little cryptocurrency was called Dogecoin. I don't know if you've seen the news of this, but there's something called cryptocurrency that's way too complicated for me to even try to explain it to you, but it's a little bit of a stock market kind of a deal, and, and I had the opportunity to invest, and it was really small at the time, and I didn't, but then all of a sudden, we get into 2021, and that stock explodes and goes up. And what I began doing over the period of a few days when it was nearing its peak is I began calculating how much money I could have made if I had invested back in December when the cost of that stock, when the price was really low. And if I had taken just that $360 and invested it in December, back at its peak, I believe sometime around the month of May, I would have made $72,000 off of that $360 investment. But then that wasn't enough, right? Because like, okay, well, also around that same time, I sold my house, and what if instead of putting into savings, which by the way is a safe thing, and just by the way, I'm gonna stop and say, I am not advocating that you invest in cryptocurrency or Dogecoin. It is very volatile. Since it reached its peak, it has dipped considerably. Not saying that at all. That's not the point. I'll get to the point here in a minute. But still, what if I had taken the money from my house uh, being sold, and if instead of putting into savings, I put it into Doge and let it go there? Well, if I had done that, I would have made over $3 million just in the course of five or six months. And so for a few days, I was obsessively looking over this, and just my thought was, oh, look at what I missed out on. It was the opportunity of a lifetime, and I did not seize it. And the reason I bring that up is not to encourage you to invest in Dogecoin or crypto or anything else. That's not the purpose. The purpose is just, I think, in, in, in our lives, all of us are a little bit of afraid of missing out on great opportunities, right? We've even created this little bit of a phrase called FOMO, fear of missing out. And this fear of missing out on an opportunity that we could have been involved in, but then we missed it. And because of that, we missed something amazing. And what, what I want to give to us this morning as a church, as we wrap up our Analog Church series, 
is talk about the greatest opportunity that we as a church and that any of us as individuals can be a part of. And that's to be a part of what God is doing on planet Earth and in human history. That God in human history and right now has a mission, something that he is going after. And we get to be a part of it. We have the opportunity of a lifetime, the opportunity of your lifetime. And today I want to tell you just what that is and how we can take some steps into it together. We're going to be coming out of a few passages here at the beginning. I'm going to have a stand here in just a second. I'm going to read a couple of passages that kind of give us God's mission and really the church's mission, how the church is called to be a part of it. I'm going to read from Romans 10. I'm going to come back to Romans 10 at the end. And then just know we're going to be going all throughout the scriptures today because I really want to show you the heartbeat of God in the scriptures for his mission, for how we can be a part of it. But that, that being said, wherever you are, please stand. Obviously, if you're in the car, please don't do that. Just listen attentively and reverently. But if you're able to, please stand with me as we read the scriptures. We'll start with Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Romans 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him? on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You may be seated. Well, we are wrapping up today Analog Church, and if, if you haven't been with us, or maybe you have, but you've just forgotten what we've really been talking about, we've been talking about how do we be the church in a digital world? How do we, together as a church, have real people in real places together and, and do life together and fulfill what the church is supposed to be? And we, we, we've talked about how we're supposed to be a family together and be in community together. We've talked about how we're supposed to serve one another, give, using our spiritual gifts and our experiences and talents and passions that God has given us. But what, what I've found sometimes, I've been in the church for a while, is a lot of times when we talk about the church, we'll hit really strongly on community and on serving, and those are so crucial. It's part of what it means to be the church. But what I've found is that sometimes we will leave out one of the very first things that God put into the church and gave to the church and that was a mission for the church. We just read from Matthew 28 and Acts 1 and Romans 10, the mandate and the mission for the church. This idea of a mission and being on mission and making disciples as at the very core of what it means to be in a church and what it means to be a Christian. In fact, David Bosch, a missiologist, someone who studies mission and writes about mission, says this, Christianity is missionary by its very nature or it denies its very reason for existence. And so we as a church at Redeemer really want to be a part of God's mission and what he's doing. And that's why we talk all the time about seeing everyone everywhere experiencing the gospel. It's why we talk about making disciples that then go and make disciples. It's why we talk about planting churches that plant churches and how we want to live on mission and live to multiply. This is our attempt to be a part of it. And what I want to do today is give you two foundational truths, to give us two foundational truths for God's mission in the world and how we can be a part of it 
together. Truth number one is that the story of Scripture and thus really the story of reality. I don't know if you have ever caught that, but really the story of Scripture is the story of reality. It is the story of what has happened, is happening, and will happen forever. So the story of Scripture is in many ways the story of the mission of God. I don't know about you, but I love stories. I love reading novels and fiction and short stories. Love watching movies. It's one of my favorite things to do with some of my free time is just to go and watch a good movie because I love a good story. And one of my favorite stories ever is Lord of the Rings. Now, now some of you, when you hear that, you might be thinking, okay, this guy is a bigger nerd and geek than I thought. That's okay. I'll own that when it comes to Lord of the Rings because it's just simply one of the greatest stories ever written. And if you're not familiar with the story, basically is there's this group of people that are living in this place called Middle Earth, and they are actually in the middle of a much bigger story than their own. It's been going on for thousands of years, and it has some of the classic themes of good versus evil, and they find themselves in the middle of this story and that they're now part of. And they have a choice, in a sense, of whether they want to continue to live their own quiet lives. There's this guy named Frodo and another guy named Sam. They're what's called hobbits. And they had been in a quiet little peaceful place of the earth. And all of a sudden, they found themselves swept up in this bigger story than themselves. And they could have kind of kept to their own and done that, or they had the opportunity to join the greatest story of their lifetime, and they did. In the same way, here's what I'd say, is that we here in the 21st century are part of a much bigger story than the 21st century. We're part of the greatest story that has ever been told and is ever being told. And it's what God is doing. Well, what is God doing? I love how Michael Goheen says that he's, a, he's also a missiologist. He says that God's mission, what God is doing, is his long-term purpose to restore people from all nations and the whole creation. So he's restoring all nations to himself, and he's restoring the whole creation. Thus he goes on, the Bible tells us the story of God's long historical journey to liberate his world from the destructive power of sin. Now I would also maybe go on and add in addition to this that the reason he does this is so that we could behold and enjoy and show forth God's glory. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, when the world is finally restored to God, and we're going to get there here in a little bit together, but when the world is finally restored, what you see in the book of Revelation is people in heaven worshiping Jesus forever. So God restores people to himself, and he restores the creation so that he might be glorified forever by the people there and in his creation. Now, that being said, I love, Goheen goes on to say, and this can be a little bit of a longer quote, but follow with me because it's very important. He says that the Bible, the scriptures, are a narrative record of God's mission in and through his people for the sake of the world. It tells a story in which mission is a central thread. God's mission, Israel's mission, Christ's mission, the Spirit's mission, the church's mission. Indeed, the whole Bible is itself a missional phenomenon. The writings that now comprise our Bible are themselves the product of and witness to the ultimate mission of God. Mission is not just one of a list of things the Bible happens to talk about, only maybe a bit more urgently than some. Mission is, in the much-abused phrase, what it is all about. Now, that is a big statement, and that is a pretty bold idea. But what I want to do for a few minutes is just give us an overview of Scripture to kind of maybe let you in on what Goheen is referring to, and I think he's actually in many ways right about. 
that the idea that the mission of God is central to the story of Scripture. So let's just maybe do a flyover of Scripture and, and show how this comes about. So Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. And he doesn't be, create it because he's lonely or needy. The way I sometimes joke is he wasn't looking at, you know, at, at himself and thinking, man, I'm bored. Oh, myself, I'm bored. Like, what am I going to do? And I should just create a world. He wasn't doing that. He was perfectly happy in and of himself. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had an eternal communion, and they were just fine. But they wanted to show forth their glory and show forth and share the love they shared amongst each other with something. And so they created the world, Genesis 1 and 2. And they create humans. And there, there's this perfect relationship that God has with the first humans, with Adam and Eve, and that Adam and Eve have a perfect relationship with each other, and they have a perfect relationship with creation, and everything is perfect and working together in harmony. But then Adam and Eve do the one thing that God told them not to do, and sin enters into the world, and everything is fractured. Their relationship with God is fractured. Their relationship with each other is fractured. There's now conflict and strife amongst humans, and their relationship with creation is fractured, and creation itself is fractured. There's a curse put on creation. So now all the brokenness that we see in our world, and, and even, listen, I've, I've experienced this, that even if you're talking to someone who doesn't believe in God, they have to admit that something is broken and wrong with this world. And what we see in Genesis 3 is that is because sin has entered into the world and fractured everything. And so this question begins to arise is, okay, so like, what is God going to do about that? You get a little hint actually in Genesis 3. There's this part where it says that God that will send somebody from Eve's lineage, from her line, that will crush the head of the serpent whom had tempted Adam and Eve. And this is a little hint of Jesus, but I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But there is this question because heaven of, okay, what's going to happen? Well, over the next few chapters of the Bible, really Genesis, then 4 through 11, things devolve. You've got other chaos and sin. Things get more and more wrong. You get the flood that happens as a result of that. In Genesis 11, everybody congregates together to make a name for themselves. And so God scatters the people across the world, and that's how nations informed and developed. So there's this ongoing question of, okay, what is God going to do about what has happened in the world? And then finally in Genesis 12, you really, in a sense, begin to get an answer. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abram and he says this, I will make you a great na nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And he goes on to say eventually, verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth, the families that had just been dispersed throughout the earth, shall be blessed. So God's answer, what he's going to do in response to the brokenness and sin in the world is he is going to call a man and his family and eventually that family will become a great nation and through that nation somehow the world will be blessed. You really get this even more later in Exodus 19. Uh, kind of what happens is that by the end of Genesis, Abram is no longer on the scene, but his family has kind of begun to slowly grow to about 70 people. They find themselves in Egypt trying to escape from a famine in their own land. And over the next 400 years, they become slaves in Egypt, but they also multiply eventually into a great nation of millions of people. God leads them out of slavery into the promised land. And as he's doing this, he makes a covenant with them. And here's what he says. In Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So again, he's got a special nation and they have a special calling. But in verse 6, we see what it is. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
So yes, these nation, these people were supposed to have a special relationship with God. At the same time, the purpose is that they would be priests in a sense on behalf of the world. And a priest is one who represents the world to God and intercedes and stands in between. And then therefore, the rest of the Old Testament is really a, a sense of how are they going to live up to this or not. But I just want to capture that this was their calling. In fact, I think you get this really clear in Psalm 72, verses 8 and 11. Actually, sorry, Psalm 67, 1 through 3. I apologize. It says, may God be gracious to us. This is Israel speaking. He says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. But get this, verse 2, so that the purpose is your way may be known on all the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So again, you get this idea that God has the special people, but the role that this people is to play is that somehow the peoples and nations of the earth are to come to be restored and know God. But again, the rest of the book of the, I mean, the rest of the Old Testament is in a sense of, okay, so how do the people live up to this calling? And if you've read the Old Testament, you know they fail miserably. They don't obey God. They aren't a holy nation. They do a miserable job of following God and then also representing him to the world. And there's all these consequences that then that happen. Eventually, they're sent into exile, but there's this long question, okay, so like, what is God going to do? How is he going to restore Israel and fulfill his promises that he made to Abraham, that through him the whole world would be blessed? And what you get hints of more and more is that there's going to be one who comes that does for Israel what it couldn't do for itself, and that through this person, salvation will come to the world. In fact, one of the things that I love is there's this a brief allusion to even the future in Habakkuk 2.14 that eventually the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover over the sea. And at the end of the Old Testament, it just leaves us with the tension of this hasn't happened yet, but it foretells of one who is going to come and make it happen. And then sure enough, 400 years after the last book of the Old Testament is written, Jesus comes on the scene. Mark 1, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The one who is going to make all things right and restore not only Israel but the world to God had come. And what does he do? He brings 12 guys along and others along. And I love how even Mark says it. I believe in Mark 2 or 3, he says, he called them to them that they might be with him. So relationship with Jesus is what starts it all. But then it says also so that he might send them out. He had a mission. He told people, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' purpose was to come in on mission to the earth to restore the earth to himself and to seek those who were lost. And eventually that mission led him to the cross. So Jesus lived a perfect life, a life that you and I can't live, but then he went to a cross to die the death that you and I deserve to die for sin. But then he's resurrected on the third day so that we can have life as well and be restored to God. But it doesn't end there because after this happens, before Jesus goes back into heaven, he commissions the people, the thing that we read at the very beginning of Matthew 28 and Acts 1, and he sends them out now to go and make disciples. In the same way that he had made them disciples, he's now sending them out to go and make disciples so that more people can come to know Jesus and so that the kingdom can continue 
to come on earth and people would be restored to God. So that really takes us now up to the Gospels. But then what is the book of Acts? The book of Acts is the story then of those people going and making disciples and planting churches and it's happening continuously and continuously to the point of the end of Acts. They're in Rome and now they're at their ends of the earth or at least the ends of the earth as they would have considered it. Well then now let's think about what are the letters of the New Testament? So now we've gone really Genesis to the letters. And now what are the letters? Well the letters that Paul and Peter and others write are letters to churches that had been planted while they were on that mission and as they're going out on mission. So they're writing to churches they planted and disciples that have been made. So even the letters of the New Testament are missionary documents. They're writing to people that they had converted and churches that had been planted and talking about what it means to walk with Jesus and to live in and under the gospel. And then we get to the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. And I've already even just told you really the idea is that here's the culmination of when everything is finally restored. And it's interesting that in Revelation 22, last chapter in the Bible, here's what we get. The angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So Genesis there's a tree of life, but then it's lost because of sin. Last chapter of the Bible, it's restored, but look what happens. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The nations have now been restored because disciples have been made of the nations. And they're now getting to enjoy the presence of God forever and worship and glorify him forever. The story of the Bible is a story of God restoring a lost world to himself. That is the story not only of the Bible, but of reality and of history. And now I think we need to stop and ask ourselves two questions. Okay, like, so where are we in the story? Not, not we as individual people, but even more I'm thinking we as a church, like we as a church at Redeemer and we as the church as a whole, where we're at is we're in between Matthew 28 and Revelation 22. That we are now called to go and make disciples that make disciples and to plant churches that plant churches. But then as we do that, guess what? We get to be a part of the greatest story ever being told. What else would we want to be about as the church? And, that, and again, that's why we do what we do at Redeemer. It's why we make disciples that make disciples. It's why we plant churches. That's why we live on mission because we're just wanting to join God in what he's doing. And because our lives have been transformed by the gospel and God's amazing grace, we want to see the same thing happen to others. I love in the book of Acts, there's this scene where the people were proclaiming Jesus to others and they threatened to stop and they said, listen, we can't stop telling people about what we've seen and heard. God had radically transformed their lives, and now they wanted to see the same thing happen. It's the same with us today. But then I have a second question is, where are you, the person watching this, in this story? Are you even a part of this story? And what, what I mean is, have you been made a disciple of Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Because if you don't, I'm just here to tell you, that's the first step for you. That's the first step. So just know that if you're, if you're watching this, if you're listening to this, if, if you're hearing about all that Jesus has done in order to restore you back to a relationship with God, you can have that right now. You can have it today. I, I encourage you to even right now, maybe stop the rest of the room, just be praying through that. Talk to God right now. If you need help talking through that, please contact us as a church. We'd love to talk to with you about what that means. So, so maybe that's step one for some people, but maybe you're watching this and you already are a believer. You're already a disciple of Jesus. Man, where are you in the story? Are you joining God in what he's doing on earth? You know, it's so tempting in, in our world to make everything about us. 
All right, think about it. YouTube's phrase, I don't know if it still is this, but used to it was broadcast yourself. Twitter is about my thoughts. Instagram is about me and my life and my story. So much of it is focused on me and my story. But here's something I just want us to realize today. Our stories as people are really, 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 really small and short. Then the grand scheme of human history, we are a blip on the map. I was just telling someone the other day just about the size and immensity of space and time and how it just blows me away. We sent out a Voyager spacecraft, I believe, in the 70s. And we held it, and it is true, as the first human-made spacecraft to ever leave the solar system. It left the solar system uh, back in sometime in the, in the teens here a few years ago. So it took about 35 or 40 years for it to leave our solar system. The Voyager spacecraft right now is going over 25,000 miles an hour every second, and it's not slowing down. But then I was watching this documentary, and it said that it will take 40,000 years for it to reach the nearest star. And I just literally, when I saw that on the TV screen, my life shrank. I realized, oh my goodness, I am so small in size and in time. I'm a blip on the radar. Now, that could depress us, but it's not, that really doesn't depress me. What it d- does to me is strive, it, it makes me strive to think, okay, if my life is small and it is short, how can I make it count? And I can make it count by making it matter for what matters most and joining a greater story than my own that I can choose to have the starring role in a very small movie called My Life, or I can take my life and the story of my life and plug it into the greatest story that's ever been told and being a supporting actor in that story, and that's the mission of God. And I hope you do the same. Now, I gave us one truth. So the first truth is the idea that the story of Scripture is the story of God reconciling the world to himself and that we now get to be a part of that. And that really leads me to the second truth is this, and it's attention. God does not need people to accomplish his purposes, but he uses people to accomplish his purposes. So you get like Acts 17.25 says, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. And we need to remember that. Like God is doing just fine on his own. And he can do anything he wants to do. He could accomplish his purposes any way he wants. But what you see in scripture is that even though that's true, he uses human hands and he uses us to accomplish it. And he doesn't use us as a tool. He uses us as his children. And so we get to be a part of it, and we have a role to play. The thing I think about most in this is actually in the Old Testament with Moses. Um, there's this part where God goes to Moses, and his people I've referred to already were in slavery for 400 years. And so God goes to Moses, and here's what happens. If you go back and read the account of the burning bush, like at least 10 times God's name or his actions are mentioned. And so he says, hey, I've heard the cry of my people, and I've seen their suffering, and I'm going to deliver them out of their suffering and their slavery, and I'm going to bring them into a new land. So it's over and over over again about God and how awesome God is and what he has done and is going to do. But there is a moment where God looks at Moses and he says, hey, now you go. So God is just fine on his own, but his pattern is that he still uses people to accomplish the purposes that he is going to fulfill. And it's the same thing today. God is going to fulfill his mission. I don't know if you've noticed it, but so much when we talk about God's mission is will. So in Acts 1-8, you will be my witnesses. It's a guarantee. Another place in Matthew, it says that the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth, and then it will come. It's a guarantee. It's going to happen one way or another. The question is, are you and I going to be a part of it? And listen to me, we have a part 
to play. And our part is really found again in that scripture that I wrote early, read earlier in Romans 10. Let me read it again for us just to jog our memories. It says this, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him and of whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Paul here is describing how someone comes to saving faith in Jesus. Really how, in a sense, Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8 are going to be fulfilled. And he really follows a simple train of logic. I've got some uh, links here that I think will help us just follow this train of logic together. Okay? First off, he says, hey, someone can't call on Jesus unless they believe in Jesus. Okay? But someone can't believe in Jesus if they haven't heard the message of Jesus. But someone can't hear the message of Jesus unless someone proclaims that message to them. Now, it uses the word preach, but also this can just be a word that means to bring good news or bring tidings or just to tell people. So don't just think preaching to crowds. It can just be bringing the message of the gospel. But then it says that person can't bring that unless they are sent out by God and by the church to do so. So there's this chain of events that leads up to someone coming to faith. And what I want us to see is that we get to, in a sense, have to be a part of it for that to happen. The church, let me put it this way, the church is God's plan A for accomplishing his mission. And there is no plan B. If God's mission is to restore to people to himself, and that happens as they place faith and call on Jesus to save them and to be restored back to God, but all that has to happen by someone telling them the message and people being sent out to do that, the church has to be a part of it. But that also, guess what? Because you are part of the church, in a sense, you are the church. You are a member of the church. You get to be a part of that. You are God's plan to reach those people in your spheres of influence. In fact, let's just stop for a second and let's, let's talk about that because I think that's a little bit of a, a struggle for us. Um, we usually think that the way everything we just read in Romans 10 is going to be accomplished is by people like me or Rob or famous preachers or missionaries or other people going and preaching to thousands, maybe us sharing a video on YouTube. Like That's how Romans 10 and Acts 1 and Matthew 28 are going to be accomplished. But I actually don't think that's the primary way it's going to be accomplished. And let me, let me show you what I think is the primary way. Go ahead and if you have it uh, with you, just take out your phone, unless obviously you're watching this on your phone, then this is going to be a little bit difficult. Just follow me along and imagine it with me if that's the case. Just take out your phone if you're watching this on a computer or somewhere else, maybe an iPad or whatever. And I just want you to take out your phone and to turn the camera app on. And I want you to point it at the screen. Okay, and again, if, you, if you're watching this on your phone, just imagine this with me. Like, if you're pointing at the screen right now, again, this is how we usually think that the Great Commission in Romans 10 is going to be accomplished is by people sitting up on a platform sharing the gospel with people. But I want to actually show you the primary way that I think it's going to be accomplished. Just hit that reverse button on your camera and look into it. I think you're looking right now at God's primary plan to reach your friends and your family and your neighbors and those you're around each and every you are God's primary plan to bring the gospel to people. And this could be to neighbors. 
could be to coworkers, it could be to your family. In fact, I had this burden as I was getting ready. I really wanted to speak to a moment that if, if you're a parent, especially if you're a stay-at-home parent, a lot of times when you hear a, a, a sermon about being on mission, it's like, like, okay, well, how do I do that? All I interact with is like my kids at home a lot of the day. Well, here's, here's the incredible thing is that if we're called to restore people back to God and people who've never had a relationship with Jesus, guess what? If you're a parent, the closest unreached person is your child that you can live a life of purpose and mission even as you're taking care of your kids by being a person who presents and lives the gospel in front of your kids. Any one of us can get on this. And in fact, let's go back to this. I've got a little chain of uh, here. So I did kind of a chain of sequence from Romans 10, but I got a different chain. I want us to think about for a second our spiritual lineage. And what I mean by that is who, who was it that brought you to faith. Nah, that's probably a bad way of saying it because God ultimately brings his faith, but who was it that shared the gospel with you? Maybe, maybe it was someone on TV and maybe that happened for you. And if so, that's fine. But maybe it was a one-on-one interaction with somebody. Maybe it was after church, you were talking to somebody. Maybe it was at a camp, whatever it was. Who was it? What was the name of the person that explained the gospel to you and that was an instrument being used by God to bring you to faith? That's the link in the chain for you. Now, there was someone, though, that, guess what, shared the gospel with them. In fact, one of my favorite stories is of Billy Graham, and I, I once read, in a sense, his spiritual lineage. And yes, he, he had come to faith, I think, um, by going to a large gathering. But if, if you go back into the Billy Graham spiritual lineage, it starts with a man, as far as they could stretch it back, who taught Sunday school and was just a businessman. And he had a heart and a burden for some of the teens that around. So he went and he shared the gospel with that person. That person shared the gospel and so on and so forth and eventually led to Billy Graham. So we, each of us, have a spiritual lineage of people who shared the gospel with others and eventually it has led to us. And here's what I want you to know. God does not want you to be the last link in the chain. That there is someone, multiple people maybe even, that he wants you to share the gospel with so they might be restored to him. What an amazing thing that you get to be part of and that I get to be a part of. Well, how do we do that? How, how, how do we actually then do Romans 10? I, I want to give us just three encouragements as we kind of wrap up our time today of, okay, maybe how you can begin stepping towards this. Uh, first off, I just want to encourage you, share your life with people. Share your life with people. I get this from 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It says, because we loved you, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So Paul spoke the gospel to these people, but he also lived amongst them and showed love to them. And he modeled the gospel for them with his life. He wasn't a perfect man. None of us are. But he just shared his life with them. It reminds me of a, a, a quote by Michael Green. He's a, a scholar who studied the early church, and specifically evangelism in the early church. And this is where he said, what he said. He said, wherever they went, Christians were opposed as antisocial, atheistic, and depraved. Their message proclaimed a crucified criminal, and nothing could have been less calculated than that to win them converts. Christianity was ridiculous. Yet, Michael Green goes on to say, they made these people the grace of God credible by a society of love and mutual care, which astonished the pagans and was recognized as something entirely new. So the message of the gospel and the message of Christianity and of the church was too incredible to believe in a sense, but their lives shared with and lived in front of these people made it credible. 
And then I also think in, in, in modern days, it's still a little bit of time ago, but I was rereading one of my favorite books. It's called A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Vonnegut. It's a memoir, incredible, one of my top five books ever. I've read it at least four or five times. It stirs me every time. And it's the story of Sheldon Vonnegut and his wife. And at one point, they were atheistic, maybe more agnostic, but basically just ridiculed Christians and, and Christianity, thought it was the most absurd thing they'd ever heard. In fact, they, their argument was that it's, it's too small considering how big the universe is to be true. And so they had this preconceived notion, but then they eventually go to Oxford, England for school, and they begin meeting some people and befriending some people. And here's what they say about these people. These were people that they had, he had just kind of introduced in the book. These were our first friends, close friends. More to the point, perhaps all five were keen, deeply devoted, and committed Christians. But we liked them so much that we forgave them for it. We began hardly knowing we were doing it to revise our opinions, not of Christianity, but of Christians. But what's interesting, if you go on and read the story, is that this is the first breakthrough, that as he does this and as these people begin to listen to their questions and their thoughts and patiently and lovingly kind of dialogue with them, their opinions about Jesus did begin to change and eventually they came to faith in Jesus and it started as people shared their lives with them. So I, I just think if we're going to do analog church in a digital world, We've got to be people who share our lives in real ways with real people, with our neighbors, our family, our friends, our coworkers. Let's be a hospitable people who live our lives in front of other people for the gospel. But eventually, I will go to the second thing. So share your life. But I would also encourage you, share your story with people. There's this common phrase that people quote, and it says this, um, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Where I'm going to just kind of do a spoiler alert and bad thing. It's necessary to use words. It's, it's the nature of the gospel. The gospel revolves around an event of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And an event, by definition, is something that you have to put into words and to tell people. And, and a friend of mine experienced this in a real way. Um, he, back, in, I was in seminary, and he was telling me about how he really was trying to share his life with people and live his life um, in an appealing way in front of other people and model what the gospel had done to his life and how it had transformed him. Okay. And so he tried to live a life of peace and joy and happiness that is found not in striving, but in receiving all that God has done for us. And people did begin to notice. And at one point, someone came up to him and says, man, you just have so much peace, so much joy and love. Do you do yoga? And it was like he had this moment where he realized, all right, it's great that I've been doing this, but doing this alone isn't enough. I've got to help people connect the dots to Jesus. And that revolved, this guy just started sharing his story then with some of these people, okay? And I, I want you to see that him sharing his life led to that moment, but he eventually had to share about his story and what Jesus had done. And that to me is one of the best places to start if you don't know where to start. Just share about what God has done in your life. And you don't have to do this like in a 20-minute long epic saga. A lot of this can be just as you're doing life with people, you find out what they're struggling with. So like maybe a coworker or a neighbor, you're just talking with them or having a beer with somebody or something like that. And all of a sudden, they're just talking about their anxiety or their stress or their worries. And, and you, a simple thing you can do is say, hey, well, you know, I've, I've dealt with that myself. And here's the time where I was anxious or stressed or worried. You mind sharing how, how I got help in that and how, how I got through that? And if they're open, they say, yeah, just talk to them about how Jesus transformed that situation for you. And at that point, you can just say, hey, would you like to know more about that? And if they say no, just respect that and leave it there. But if they say yes, now you have a inroad to go to our next thing, which is to share the gospel. But before I get to that, let me just say, like, sharing your story is such an effective thing. Because people can argue about theology People can argue about scripture, but they can't argue with your story. 
And, and so just share your story with people of how Jesus has transformed your life. Now, that being said, I do think there is a third step because you need to share the gospel for, for two reasons. Number one, your story is not the gospel. Your story is an example, a powerful example of how the gospel has transformed a life. But it's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and all that he has done for us. The other reason is this, is that in the same way that someone can't argue with your story, you can't argue with other stories, other people's stories. So at some point, I think you need to go past our subjective stories and go ultimately to objective truth, which is the scriptures and is the gospel. Now, I don't have time this morning to, to explain different ways to share the gospel. I have an, a, a tip, and I hope this doesn't sound sarcastic. I don't mean it to be. I encourage you to go use this thing called Google and just Google how to share the gospel. There's so many great ways. Find a way that works for you, but just learn to share the gospel with people about what Jesus has done. And I just believe that as we become people who do this, listen, you're not going to have 100% success rate. In Romans 10, the passage that I just read, it goes on and says that even though that they had preached the gospel, the people that they had been preaching it to rejected it. So not everyone is going to receive this and accept it, but some will. And I do think that you are God's plan to reach people with the gospel and that we as the church are. And so here, here as we close, what I want to do is, is commission us. That, that passage in Romans 10 says that people can't share the message, the gospel, unless they're sent. And, and here's how I want to maybe be, begin reframing our gatherings together in person, and even if you're watching online, that when we close out a worship service, what that also is now is it's a commissioning service. We're commissioning each of us, not, not just the paid pastors, but we're commissioning each of us now to go and bring the gospel to people with our lives, with our stories, and with the very gospel of what Jesus has done itself. Uh, Romans 10 talked about how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. Well, guess what? Every Sunday, whether you're watching online or you're in person, your feet are going other places all week. They're going to a job. If, if it's during school and you're a student, you're going to a classroom, your feet are. Your feet are going into the kitchen where your family is, all over the place. Hey, man, let's be a people that wherever our feet go, the gospel goes with us. And let's see our county and the world changed because of it. So what I want to do right now is just pray over us and over you and commission us now to go forward with the gospel and be a church on mission in our world. Jesus, I do just want to right now pray over all of us. And maybe if, if you're listening to this and watching this, just maybe hold your hands open in a posture of receptivity and just receive this commission. Lord, I want to pray over all of us, myself included, but especially the people listening as well, that I just want to commission them now to go in grace, knowing that now they don't have to strive, that they're, they're not going out to, to do this to get you to love them, that they are sharing the gospel and being on mission in response to all that you have done for us. That we love people because you first loved us. That we share the gospel with people because the gospel has changed us. So Lord, let none of this be trying to get you to like us or to win your favor. But because you already love us. Let it be something that we get to do and that not have to do. But I do want to pray now over us that you would, everywhere our feet go over the next week, let us be people who bring the gospel with us intentionally. Let it be in our minds, in our hearts, that as we're around people, let us be looking for opportunities just to share our lives with others and to show forth 
the gospel. But you would give us opportunities, maybe as we're listening to people, to to share our stories with people. And Lord, would you give us courage? Because I do know it can be a scary thing to eventually share the gospel with people. Help us, Lord, now this next week to be a church on mission. And may we see your kingdom come here in Whatcom County and everywhere beyond. Amen.